Oh my goodness, this is my other soapbox. <laughs> I like it when you get on your soapbox. It's so powerful. Okay. So let's hear right? it. This is not acceptable out there. This is not acceptable. Let me rephrase that. This is not acceptable. <laughs> oh, oh my super gosh. valuable. Don't get me started on thin privilege. Like, <clears throat> I'm going to get started on thin privilege. In college, Mare was hospitalized for suicidal ideation and depression. While in treatment, she admitted to having an eating disorder and was soon diagnosed and treated for bulimia nervosa. Her experiences have ignited in her a passion for social issues surrounding mental health and body image. She sheds light on these important issues in this episode. I'm Katie Houston Davies, and this is Mental Illness and Me. Well, my name is Mare. Hi. Uh, it's short for Meredith. Um, I like to call myself a socially anxious extrovert because I love people and sometimes they tire me out, but not in a introvert type way. I always like to joke with my brother uh, that I am 84 years old. I like to cross stitch and sew <laughs> and like I turn into a pumpkin at like nine or 10 sometimes, mostly, usually. Um, I prefer vanilla over chocolate. I don't really like movies or TV. I mean, I like cooking shows. <laughs> that is such a fantastic description of oneself. I am 84 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I just love people. So, like, invite me to go grocery shopping with you. I love it. Like, I will do chores with you. I'll go to your doctor's appointment with you. And I will consider that bonding time. I have my bachelor's in biology pre-med. And I'm currently studying to take my MCAT, and I'm going to apply to medical school. I'd like to be a doctor, um, possibly a psychiatrist, possibly a pediatrician, possibly a combo of both. That is really exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. That's great. And so you're preparing for that right now with your current job. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. I work at a hospital nearby, and I am a basically a CNA. I help people go to the bathroom. I help get vitals. I bring water. It's just simple stuff, but I'm learning so much about systems and diagnoses and how a hospital operates and what being a physician actually looks like. Uh, recently, I've gotten to shadow one of the physicians at the job I work at, and um, it, it's just a different side of things, learning exactly what a doctor does when they work in the hospital. That's awesome. And also, I think such an important piece of that is learning how to interact with patients and people who are needing help. And I think that that I am sure that you're getting a lot of on the job training doing that, too. Oh, absolutely. I, I love it because I like people. So being able to be there for somebody who is maybe not happy and maybe taking it out on you, but still being upbeat and chipper and being like, hey, look, it's cool, man. I get it. Or even if I don't, I'm here for you. Just from the few minutes that I've talked to you, it sounds like this is right up your alley. And you're going to be a great doctor. No, thank you. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your mental illness journey, starting with how long it has been for you. How long has it been since you first noticed that you dealt with mental illness? Well, that is the question, isn't it? Um, I actually did some therapy work on how long things have been going on. 
Uh, I know in high school, I had like this mild depressive episode and I sort of just focused on it's not about me it's about helping other people and that sort of pulled me out of it but it really wasn't life destroying uh my freshman year in college i may have been a little hypomanic i am unsure but i worked three part-time jobs i took 19 credit hours and i got a 4.0 wow <laughs> so <laughs> It was that high-functioning type of hypomanic where you're not quite spending all your money and destroying your life type thing. Uh, but so you're running your, you were running yourself ragged. Yes. Because immediately after that, I hit the worst depressive episode I've ever had. Right. It's kind of like it comes right before the crash, right? Just the, all the... You can't be that successful without uh, sort of a consequence when you have no absolutely no time and no energy left absolutely and that is exactly how it played out um <clears throat> it was my junior year in college and I remember barely being able to wake up and barely being able to leave my dorm much less go to class I would have panic attacks nearly every day um I remember my two best friends being there for me in the midst of panic and depression, and we're still friends today. Right. And it's funny for somebody who's as social as you are to be in that place where you don't want to go out, interact with people. That just shows that there's something really wrong. Oh, my goodness. I value social interaction so much. And all of my mental illnesses, when they hit me in their combined strength, just destroyed that value that I have. I, I value people and it destroyed my honesty. That leads me to my next question, which is when and how did you receive uh, an official diagnosis? Well, um, this comes to my next stage in life because it, it's part of the previous question as well. I ended up in the psychiatric hospital I think seven times over the course of two and a half years um, for suicidal ideation, for suicide attempt. Um, and it just, it was rough. The last time that I was in the hospital for acute inpatient psych, it was because of my eating disorder. And so I asked, hey, this is what's really tearing me apart. I need help. So I went straight from the acute inpatient to an eating disorder treatment program. And that's where I was officially diagnosed with bulimia. So the bulimia had been going on prior to your visits to the psychi psychiatric ward? Yes. Okay. But you just hadn't necessarily related it to the depression at that point? Correct. Okay. So they kind of intermingled um, because bulimia leaves you malnourished. And when you're malnourished, your medications aren't working. And so if your medications aren't working, then you're depressed. And if you're depressed, then you feel like you're losing control. And if you're losing control, then that feeds into the eating disorder. 
that says, no, 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 we must have control. And so it leads you to restrict more, which leads you to binging and purging more, which leads you to being more depressed. Wow. So had you already started some medications for depression when you had that first episode in your junior year of college? So junior year of college, and then I ended up in the hospital at the end of that year. And that's when I first started medication. Okay, so uh, continue then on your on your journey. So you were diagnosed with bulimia and went straight into a treatment program. Yes. And um, from there, I became medically stable and psychiatrically stable, which was quite the journey at the time. And I got out of treatment and started to try recovery and my medication started working. And I realized that life doesn't have to be miserable. I don't have to do these behaviors. I don't have to engage in what my eating disorder is telling me to do. And so I did end up in treatment one more time, but it was a lot more brief and not as intensive. So it was more just like, a, all right, we're going to stop these behaviors in their tracks and get you right back into the real world. Which at the time I, I was like, no, I need treatment. I, I'm in a terrible spot. And then now I'm like, no, I, that was the perfect solution for me. Well, and I think that that's an important thing to realize is that mental illness is full of relapse. You know, it's not ever going to be something that is totally cured a hundred percent. It is a, it is a companion. It will be a companion to you for the rest of your life. And so there will be times when you'll need some more maintenance or some more help and treatment. And that's totally okay. I like your attitude where you said, you know, I did go back one more time, but it was more to just help me kind of reset, recharge. And I think that we just have to recognize that about ourselves, that that is going to happen. So what were your official diagnoses then besides bulimia? Okay, so depression, major depressive disorder, uh, which was officially diagnosed my junior year in college. Uh, recently, I would say we're leaning towards bipolar 2, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Uh, me and my psychiatrist are working on that, and we're seeing, you know, if we go up on this medication, will it help the symptoms be better, etc. Right. Okay. So major depressive disorder that possibly could be bipolar two. Yes. Which if I'm not mistaken, bipolar two means there aren't as many of the high manic. I I can't remember what the difference is between bipolar two and one. So the difference is mania versus hypomania. Hypo meaning below. Oh. With bipolar one, you go all the way up. You're doing things that are going to just rip your finances apart. They're going to destroy relationships. Whoever you are, you are on steroids. And then hypomania is just above highly functional and just below destructive. So okay. you're able to do things with more vigor and vim and you're able to run around and, and stay up late and do all the jobs and you're not destroying your life, but it's still not sustainable. And it leads to a crash, inevitably. Correct. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. I have two more diagnoses. <laughs> I have generalized anxiety disorder. 
um, which is just, you know, being anxious all the time about potentially nothing, but probably something. And that was diagnosed again, my junior year in college, which was the first time I went inpatient. Um, and then diagnosed this last year, strangely enough, was idiopathic hypersomnia. That is the cousin to narcolepsy. And um, it's basically like I'm sleepy all the time. Uh, right now I'm finally on a medicine for it. But it's the type of sleepy where you just can't resist. Like you'll be talking to someone and your words start to slur and you're falling asleep in the middle of a conversation. Like I got into a car accident, a fender bender, but I was so sleepy. But I did a sleep study and the only reason that they couldn't diagnose me with official narcolepsy is because the psych meds that I was taking uh, suppress a certain type of brain pattern when you sleep. Uh, REM sleep. Wow. So does your psychiatrist believe that this sleep disorder is related to mental illness or is this just a totally separate medical issue that just compounds a lot of problems that are already there? Well, it definitely compounds the problems. Um, but interestingly enough, the sleep specialist that I went to see is a psychiatrist. So in what ways would you say that these mental illnesses that you have been dealing with have most impacted the different areas of your life? So definitely with the sleepiness, it is difficult to focus and concentrate and remember, which I want to be a doctor. Most of that is remembering things. And then if you compound, compound it with depression, uh, which makes you super lethargic, and encourages you to isolate and not interact with people and you're just sleepy anyway it just leads to stuff right it just makes the default is to sleep that that's kind of the default and it's easy to do it's you know mm -hmm. how about your relationships with people how has that how have your mental illnesses affected those mm. so in the midst of my mental illness, I had certain values that I abandoned. One of them is my value of relationships. Definitely. Um, depression isolated me from physically from people, but also emotionally from people. I would be in the same room and I wouldn't feel like I was around anyone. And then um, honesty. I value honesty. And bulimia just the secrecy and the manipulation of an eating disorder is rampant. I am an honest person in everything except my eating disorder. Um, I would tell people, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with so-and-so and we're going to eat dinner together. And then I would leave their house, go hang out with so-and-so and then say, oh no, I already ate with the person I was just hanging out with. Oh, yeah. I stopped hanging out with people at mealtimes, which translated into stop hanging out with people in the evening. Because evening, evening is prime time for behaviors. So I would restrict all day, be hungry at the end of the day, and end up leaving a friend's house to go home and just binge. And then purge. And then the cycle started over again. 
And when I say binge, it's not like you see on TV and people are like, oh, I ate so much. I, I binged on such and such. It is the most debilitating feeling. You lose control. You literally cannot stop. It is awful and suffocating and you are eating past the point of fullness, past the point of comfort to where you literally feel sick and you still can't stop. That is a binge. And I don't like when people misuse the term because sitting down and saying, oh, I'm just going to eat all of this Thanksgiving dinner, that's not a binge. And then that feeling of desperation and anxiety that you just ate so much food, you feel so out of control that you feel like everything's going to fall apart if you don't do something about it. And it has to be done now. It has to happen. And so compensatory actions result. And that is purging, which could be a couple of different things. It's not necessarily everyone thinks it's throwing up, which is the main thing, but it could be running 10 miles. That's considered purging. It's some sort of behavior that's trying to compensate for the food that you just consumed. Right. And running 10 miles almost sounds a little bit like a manic behavior too. Like um, doing something that's way almost beyond a normal, what a normal person energy would permit and it's crazy because if you're restricting then you don't have energy so you're pushing yourself past the limits of what you could possibly tolerate and then more right wow I'm really glad that you described that concept of binge and also address the fact that it is used incorrectly um, I think that's an important thing for people to recognize, especially for those who really do struggle with the disorder. Treatment is an interesting concept for people with such a competitive mental illness. Eating disorders are vastly about comparison. And when you put a bunch of people in one area with eating disorders, instantly people are going to say, well, I'm not as sick as so-and-so. I don't deserve to be here. I'm not sick enough. Or I'm about to go to treatment. I know I'm going to be going in the next three weeks. I have to show you how sick I am. I have to engage in as many behaviors as I possibly can and show you I am sick enough to go to treatment. It was fascinating for me to hear you mention the competitiveness of eating disorders and as a, as a mental illness, because I went into treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder. And when I was there, that was one of the things that I had to take apart with my counselor to deconstruct was I felt guilty for being there because I felt like I wasn't sick enough. And I kept saying, you know, I kept feeling guilty if I wasn't uh, showing enough symptoms of being worthy enough to be there basically, which of course going down that rabbit hole showed just how much I needed to be there. But it was a really interesting thing for me to realize that I was feeling guilty over feeling like I shouldn't be there because I wasn't 
qualified or something like that. And that's exactly what it's like is I am not, my body does not match the picture of what I think an eating disorder looks like. And my brain is very distorted when it comes to the picture of my body. So I don't have an accurate viewpoint to tell you that I quote unquote look sick enough. And to us, to me, to me, my appearance tells you exactly how much control I have over my life. If I have a thinner body, then I have more control. I am more put together. I feel better, which is not true. But in treatment, the comparison says whoever has the thinnest body is the sickest and therefore has the most control over what they're doing. Because it's not about the food. It's never about the food. It's about a measurable number telling you that you are capable of keeping your life together. And that number usually is weight. Sometimes it's calorie intake. Sometimes it's, for me, it was amount of caffeine that I consumed during the day. And it's silly things like how many steps I've taken, how, how few cups of water I drank today. But it's a measurable amount of how much control I have. Right. And that's what the mental illness seeks the most is that right. control. Wow. That's so interesting. I know that in my treatment with OCD, it was, we talked a lot about how, what we want the most, those of us with obsessive compulsive disorder is certainty. We want to make sure that something is the way that we think it is. And so we do anything we can to sort of grasp onto that certainty by trying to create certainty for ourselves where there is none. So like, for example, if I think so-and-so is mad at me, I just decide that he or she is, even if it's not, even if it's not rational and I live my life as though that person hates me, which means avoiding them or worrying about how much they hate me or whatever it may be, or texting them and asking them if they hate me doing whatever I can to try to make that a certain thing. So I don't have to live wondering. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about how with needing disorder, it's trying to maintain control to not feel out of control. Yeah. Oh, wow. So this is um, a very, very interesting conversation. I'm learning new things that I haven't known before. And I think this is really important conversation to have. Um, are, what are, you've, talk, you've touched on this a little bit already, but can you describe some of the other feelings that you've had as you've battled with either bulimia or any of these other mental illnesses, what are some of the overwhelming emotions that you have felt? Um, fear, shame, self-hate, um, panic, that feeling of loss of control. It, there's this thought in the forefront of your mind that says, maybe I'll feel better if I lose some weight. But then you look at the scale and it's gone up 0.1 pound 
which is completely normal and within fluctuations of like water weight and whatever and instantly you're just crushed for the rest of the day and so that kind of makes you realize that losing 0.1 pound isn't gonna make you happy no it, it doesn't it doesn't make you realize that because then you ramp up the behaviors and you keep going and maybe tomorrow the scale will change so you're living in a very black and white very now centered universe where i'm going to do what is going to make me feel better now and not what's in the long run going to make me feel better right okay that's a great clarification thank you and i wonder through all of the different treatments that you have had and the experiences that you've had what has helped you the very most as you have fought hard to overcome these mental illnesses and regain your life? I want to say it was family and friends because I felt so much love and encouragement and support from them. And they have helped, yes. But the most helpful thing in my battle has been medication. It took almost three and a half years to find the right combo. So if you're out there and you're listening and you just haven't found the right combo yet, it's okay. It takes a while, but it will happen. I'm going to get on my platform of take your meds real quick because it's getting the uncontrollable biology under control that will actually help you be able to stand and tackle the behavioral aspect of what a mental illness is. Medications make you you again. They don't change who you are. Like if you had cancer, you would take the chemo, right? Or a headache, you'd take the painkiller. Just because we don't understand the exact cause of depression or really any mental illness doesn't mean the medications are any less helpful. Like if I were to say you had one tiny spot in your brain and it's malfunctioning, and if you take this pill, it would stop malfunctioning, would you take that medication? Depressed you is not you. Anxious you is not you. Eating disorder you, not you. Part of your brain is malfunctioning. And just because we don't understand the science of it yet, doesn't mean you shouldn't take the meds. They help you get back to baseline. They help you be you again. Right. Well, you hit the nail right on the head because I just recall back... I don't know, 15 years ago when I was having this conversation with my therapist, just saying, I don't want to change. I don't want my personality to change. I don't want to be a different person on these medications. And that is probably one of the number one fears that people have for taking medication. I love what you just said about how depressed you is not you. OCD you is not you. You know, you are somebody separate from that and taking the medicine will allow you to be the person who you truly are. And I think that that's a, a beautiful statement. Yeah. So if you could give some advice to the mayor before all of this, your teenage self, kind of before your first major depressive episode, what kind of advice would you give to yourself? Oh my goodness. I would just straight up warn her, Hey, this is going to happen. And there's a better way to handle it than I know what you're about to do. <laughs> the depression is coming. The anxiety is coming. You can't change the biology of the future. 
But I can tell you, you as in Little Mare, that it doesn't have to be black and white. And it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You are allowed to succeed halfway. You are allowed to get a B in your class. You are allowed to have people be mad at you. And you are allowed to be moderately content with who you are. You don't have to be super happy with everything about yourself. And you don't have to hate everything about yourself. You are allowed to be in the middle. There is gray. And you don't have to act as if the world is coming down because you're not in the black camp or the white camp and you're somewhere in the gray. You just, it's okay to stay in the gray. Then I love that. I would also warn her about uh, the toxicity of diet culture. Like doctors are taught that obesity is bad and people who are in larger bodies should lose weight. They then prescribe eating disorder behaviors to people in large bodies, telling them that it will fix all of their problems. That's no, that no, they need to stop. Um, I went in the middle of my relapse, I went to a weight loss doctor and there was a pamphlet in his office that gave tips and tricks on how to eat X amount of calories a day. And all of the things I saw on that list were things I had done in the middle of my eating disorder. And I'm not going to name them because I don't want to give anyone ideas. But like this doctor was literally taking disordered eating and saying, this is proper. This is right. This is what you should do. Some doctors won't even consider other treatment options until their patient loses weight because obviously the weight is their problem. I think, and I know other people as well who think the same, if you wouldn't prescribe something to someone in a smaller body, you should not be prescribing it to someone in a larger body. It's so toxic to think that weight is a defining characteristic. If your prescription that is unnecessary to physical health harms the mental health then the ends do not justify the means they never should but in this case they definitely don't there have been cases of children told to diet and exercise that have developed eating disorders only to be told that they took it too far and it's all their fault i actually never thought about it from that perspective of actually sometimes when you go to seek help getting the opposite of what you need. And I think that's why these specialized treatment centers are so important. And I, you know, I'm not familiar with all the treatment centers that are out there, but I think people who really understand the actual um, mental illness behind not just eating disorders that have to do with weight loss, but eating disorders that have to do with severe weight gain. Binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder out there and yet it's the least treated one because people blame binge eating on themselves and they say no I just I just don't have enough control and then they try to lose the weight and then they restrict and then the cycle of binging happens again 
Only they're not compensating like somebody with bulimia does. That's the only difference. If you look in the media, and a lot of people will blame, you know, the media says that thin is better and all this stuff. And that's where eating disorders come from. And we're blaming it on the media. If you look at thin privilege, it's all over the place. Like, look at airline seats and how they are not sized for people in larger bodies. Look at movies. How many times do you see a hero or, like, the main character of the story be somebody in a heavier body? Almost never. And when you do, they're usually in a comedy or a comedic role. Um anyone who's cast or even animated as a heavier set person is usually the comic relief or sometimes the bad guy. Right. And that is, that is so important. And you just got me thinking too, like even in a cartoon, like thinking about how the hero or heroine's always like got a really good body and they're really athletic and stuff. But you, if you could dig into their psyche and find out, what behaviors have gotten them to be that way? Like, would we really find behaviors that are healthy? Like, for example, some of these um, heroes or heroines that we see in the movies, what got them to be that thin? What got them to be that buff? Yeah, maybe some people really are naturally good at working out, <laughs> you know? But chances are the behaviors that led to a lot of the good bodies we see out there are just as destructive as the behaviors that lead to the bigger bodies that we see out there. It's just that they're not right. judged harshly for it. Then I am surprised at how little compassion there is for people who are quote unquote diagnosed as obese. I have seen and heard a, some of the nurses that I work with be very harsh about how it's their fault and I have no sympathy for somebody who's sick because they're overweight because it's something that they did. It's not like it's genetics or anything, which is untrue. There's a huge genetic component to weight and people don't want to acknowledge it because it's been pumped into their head in every school that you ever go to that says, no, it's behavioral. Right. That's that's absolutely true and it is so about genetics I mean I just even look at my you know you can see body types within families you can have sisters coming from the same parents and some one of them takes after the mom and one of them takes after the dad and the body types reflect that and one is naturally skinny and one has to work super super hard to um, stay in a healthy weight zone so to speak and it's just it has to do with genetics yeah is there anything else that you would like to add, I, whether it be resources that you find helpful? Uh, NIDA, uh, National Eating Disorders Association, has some beautiful resources and like talks and podcasts and stuff like that that you can listen to. Uh, Carolyn Dooner has written a, a book and it has a curse word in the title. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. But it's the Effit Diet. Yeah. <laughs> I think we get the point. And That's good. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Um, Jenny Schaefer has written a book called, I believe it's Life Without Ed. Awesome. Also, the Health at Every Size movement. Hayes 
is a really good body positivity movement. And it talks about various people of different sizes being able to do whatever the heck they want because health does not equate size. Now, if I were to say something to somebody who's in my position a year ago in treatment or wherever you are in your eating disorder recovery, I would say it's going to be okay. Choosing recovery is harder now, but it gets easier. Choosing relapse is hard and it gets worse. So you have to think about the future. If you look at what's going to make you feel better now, whatever behavior that is, it'll make you feel better for maybe 30 minutes, really. And then you'll go right back into the cycle of self-hatred. If you choose recovery, it's going to suck for those 30 minutes. But later, you have something that you can stick in your back pocket and say, hey, I did that. That's something that I did under my control and my choice. You don't have to show control through what you put in your mouth. You can show control with choosing recovery. On the website for NIDA, nationaleatingdisorders.org, there is a helpline that you can contact through chat, call, or text if you or someone you love is suffering from symptoms of eating disorders.